0: Good morning. In today's sermon, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. And if you're using our black hardback Bibles, the text can be found on page 843. Uh, While the rest of you are finding that text, allow me to catch you up, uh, especially for those who are new. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And though we took a break last week, prior to that we were in Mark chapter 7, which we're wrapping up today. And what we've seen in Mark chapter 7 is these stories of the message and power of the kingdom of God challenge both pharisaical notions of clean and unclean, pure and defiled, and notions about uh, nationality in terms of Jewish versus Gentile, which plays into that clean-unclean dynamic. In fact, what we've seen is Jesus emphatically making the point that external moral codes cannot make one clean, nor does one's demographic status make one clean. Instead, purity and defilement, according to Jesus, come down to a simple two-step process. The first step is to acknowledge that you're unclean, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you've kept some sort of culturally fabricated moral code or not you acknowledge that you're clean you or you're unclean you acknowledge that you're impure and that you're a sinner and that the standard is not this moral code but rather is a god so holy he can't abide the presence of sin and then step 2 is that you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus Christ And remember, as we have gone through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen this concept of faith pop up again and again, and we said that faith according to Mark is not mere intellectual assent. It's not an attitude that kind of says, oh yeah, sure, I believe that. Rather, it resembles the act of sitting in a chair. When we sit in a chair, we, we place our whole weight on something with the expectation that it'll hold us. And as such, placing one's faith in Jesus is to rest one's entire life on him. It's not to mentally assent necessarily to some sort of uh, understanding or views about who Jesus is, but it's actually to hang your hopes and your fears, your ambitions and desires, your plans and your dreams, your identity and your self-understanding, to hang it all on Christ and trust him to hold it. And so that act then goes beyond the mental assent of who we say Jesus is, of what Jesus' identity is. It goes beyond that to actually action, to showing our faith and to showing our trust in him. And so on the heels of texts which have, which have directed us to that understanding of clean and unclean, of faith in Jesus, on the heels of that text, we get into ours this morning, which is a really odd sort of miracle. And so let me pray as we get into this text. Lord, Father, we, we thank you uh, for your scriptures. We thank you for this text today. We gather here, first and foremost, as called-out ones, as your church, called out to be distinct, called out to worship, called out to proclaim your word and to encourage each other in pursuit of a life that is a worthy response to the gospel. So Lord, Father, I ask that you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart uh, honoring in your sight, to edifying to those who are gathered here, uh, that you make them clear, that you make the gospel clear in this presentation and that we might leave here prepared <laughs> to engage the community in which you placed us with our faith, to evangelize our friends, our family, and our neighbors. So Lord, we pray that you open up this text to us this morning. and We ask that in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were all astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So that is our our text for this morning. And a number of aspects of that text are a bit unusual. I mean, first, Mark tells us that Jesus is moving from Tyre back to Galilee. That's what is meant by the phrase, he returned. So he's returning from Tyre back to familiar territory in Galilee. But he does so by way of the Decapolis through Sidon. So it says that he goes He goes traveling to Sidon through the Decapolis, and what we have then is a highly inefficient route that Jesus takes. Specifically, this route would cut a sort of horseshoe pattern across the Decapolis, requiring a journey of an extra 120 miles on foot before arriving back in their land or territory of Galilee, where Jesus' ministry mostly takes place in where the Jewish people reside. Now, from one perspective, that might be totally fine. You know, we could consider the fact that in Mark chapter 5, Jesus sent an emissary into the Decapolis in the man who had formerly been possessed by the army of demons known as Legion. So this is, could be a sort of a harvest mission, maybe? in which Jesus is seeking out those who have already heard of him through the emissary he sent. Then this 120-mile uh, horseshoe loop makes sense. Unfortunately, we actually never get any hint of that purpose in the text. And in this text, actually what we run into is the people he interacts with rather than evangelizing them and establishing communities of Jesus' followers in the area, what we have is he tells them to keep it on the down-low. He tells them to keep it a secret, which seems to be antithetical to the purpose of a harvest mission. So, that strikes us as pretty odd. We have to figure out what is going on here. Why is Jesus telling these people to keep it a secret? Why has he traveled this way? As well, there's this whole sort of oddities that flow from the healing itself. Jesus takes the man aside privately. That, up to this point, is pretty unusual. Then Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and then touches his tongue, which is a pretty gross thing to do. Then Jesus spits, which is apparently relevant. It doesn't tell us what he spits at, doesn't tell us he spits on the ground, spits on the guy, doesn't tell us why he spits, it just tells us he spits. And Mark feels then it's necessary to record Jesus' command be opened in the original Aramaic, Ephatha. This is also unusual, only takes place a couple of times in Scripture. And if those things aren't odd enough, the man who commanded demons and disease, winds and waves, what we see in this text is he can't get a couple of people to keep the secret of what he's done. So our goal this morning is to get past the oddities of this text and see what Jesus is doing here. And I think the best way to do that, after uh, spending some time in this text, is looking at two elements and then trying to just have a conversation or uh, a little bit of discussion on something pretty practical. So the two elements which I want to consider this morning are the sigh and the secret. And from that, I want to turn to a practical discussion of evangelism. So, first, let's look at the sigh. We read this in verse 34 And looking up to heaven, he sighed (sighs) and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. You see, as I already noted, this event is a bit unusual which might lead us to skate over some of the details in pursuit of this simple meaning. In other words, we might get confused or bogged down by the little things and the details taking place in the story. And so what we just try and do is step back and get a big picture view of the text and from there try to derive some sort of simple meaning in order to, uh, in order to get something to take away from this passage. But we've said this time and time again going throughout the series. Mark does not waste words. In fact, Mark has gone to great lengths to cut out anything he sees as unnecessary for telling the story of the life and the ministry of Jesus. So when Mark includes a pretty small detail, we should ask the question, why does Mark include it? Why does he feel it necessary in this text to record the fact that Jesus sighed? The only explanation I can fathom is that the sigh carries meaning, and it communicates something about the nature and identity of Jesus. One commentator notes that there have been a number of theories put forward to what the meaning and purpose of this sigh might be. So, just to quote him, the sigh or groan in this text is puzzling and has been variously interpreted as one, part of a magical procedure or incantation, two, the exhalation of breath which carries the life force and so the power to heal, three, an expression of deep compassion for a sufferer or heartache at the ravages of disease, four, an indication of strain or emotional involvement in healing and five, the expression of heartfelt prayer. Now, my view on this particular sigh is that it has to be some combination of numbers three, four, and five given there. In other words, Jesus' sigh is a signal of compassion, strain, and prayer. And I draw this conclusion about the sigh from the other occurrences of this particular term. You see, this the word sigh here This word is more frequently translated groan. We see it come up three times in Romans chapter 8. This is a bit of a long passage, so hang in there. Romans 8, 18 to 27. For I consider that my suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the same word here for sigh in Mark chapter 7 is translated groaning together, groan, and groanings in this passage. In the context of Romans 8, what we could see is this word brings us to the intersection of compassionate prayer and strain against this physical world. Thus, we see the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness with groaning prayers on our behalf. And Paul notes, we groan as we wait for redemption of our bodies. In other words, our bodies and creation itself, which we're told groans, have been made subject to the fall, to the effects of sin. And we groan, creation groans, as we await a body, a physical realm, free from the manifestations and the effects of sin. And here's what we need to understand then in light of Romans 8, that the effects of sin, though we primarily think of them as spiritual and moral, and there's good reason for that, the effects of sin are also physical too that physical death has entered into this world because of human sin. We see this understanding of weakness brought on by physical restraint or the physical effects of sin as uh, in interaction with this word for groaning or sigh again in 2 Corinthians 5. In verses 1 to 4, we read this. For we know that if the tent that has been our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, and here he's speaking of his body, the physical body when he refers to the tent, for in this tent we groan, longing to be put in our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it off we may not be found naked, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we be unclothed, meaning he doesn't want his physical body to be done away with so that his spirit can be free. That would be more Gnostic, which Paul writes against in the book of Colossians as we preached through earlier. But rather, he says, for we still wait in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we be unclothed, but that we be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Here Paul mentions groaning because of what we await for in heaven. We await these redeemed bodies, bodies that are free from the effects of sin, free from decay and death. But in these bodies we experience sore muscles, pain, arthritis, We experience incompetence in terms of what our physical bodies can do in lining up with our desires. Our physical bodies are restrained and corroded by the effects of sin. One more, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage." Here, and I admit this passage is mildly self-serving for me, the author of Hebrews instructs his readers not to be the sort of a congregation which causes groanings from their pastors and elders. We could pretty easily gloss the term groanings here to be similar or um, to, to go along with exhaustion, burden, or weariness in the midst of the pastor or elders doing compassionate ministry. So, if we take that understanding, if we take that brief word study where we've looked at six times this word has appeared, and we understand what it means, and we carry that into Mark 7, then what we would see is Jesus' eye carries the two associations of compassionate ministry. He's ministering to the man in front of him, the blind or the deaf and mute man, and the burdens of the fallen world. The man is deaf and mute because of the physical effects of sin. When Jesus sees this man, he sees this man is not the way he is supposed to be. He is not supposed to be deaf. He is not supposed to be mute. And so applying the context here, we can understand Jesus' sigh is a prayerful exhalation in the course of a ministry action which undoes the results of the fall. He is pushing back the effects of sin and restoring properly working created order to this man's life. This is something that Mark hints at, not only with Jesus' sigh, but also a pretty thinly veiled reference to Genesis 1. You see, he concludes this telling of the story by saying, And they were all astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. Well, this language echoes Genesis 1.31, where we see God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very similar language taking place in those two texts. The subtext, then, is that the personification of the creative force of God, the logos, the word made flesh, is restoring the created order which God willed and which he, the pre-incarnate Christ, the logos, the word of God, brought about. So now I think I can hear some of you thinking, come on, Tyler, that is a lot of freight for a sigh to carry. And maybe, but consider what's taking place in this text. I know, we're looking at just a sigh, but really look at what's going on. The deaf has his hearing restored. The mute has his power of speech back. In the next chapter... Jesus will give a blind man his sight back. A similar miracle. These are no mere party tricks. As we've talked about Jesus' miracles being time and time again, they go beyond anything a human could simply do. Moreover, they connect into the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 34, there is a description of the undoing of creation as an act of judgment by God for the consequences of human sin. So what's taking place there is sin has entered the world, and God says because of this, the created order is actually breaking down. But then in the next chapter in Isaiah 35, Isaiah preaches the restorative grace of God, and he gives us this description in verses 2 through 6. We read this earlier in this Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you see that? Do you see when the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes up his pen to write of the grace and mercy of God on sinful man and on the groaning creation, what he is writing about is the ministry of Jesus. Oh, And let's not forget Isaiah 35, verse 10. Just a few verses later on in the passage, we read, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, sorrow, and, get this, sighing shall flee away. Sighing shall flee away. The sort spoken of there is the burden, sorrow, and groaning of the fallen world. You see, if we were to take Isaiah 35 and Mark 7 and overlap them, what we could say is happening there is that Jesus is sighing so that our sighing may one day cease. Jesus can prayerfully exhale, lifting the deafening effects of sin from this man's shoulders because he will sigh and groan from the cross, taking upon himself the cost of sin. So let's come back to the question that has pushed this entire series forward. The entire gospel of Mark as we have looked at it has been An investigation of the question, who is Jesus? And in the sigh and in the astonishment of the people here, what we see is Mark telling us subtly what John tells us explicitly in his gospel when he writes in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not Anything made that was made. And going down a few verses to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, this is our message. This is the gospel. This is deeply needed in our culture where the effects of sin, moral, spiritual, and physical, are around us and in us. They're so present that we could draw examples to our mind from this week and maybe even this morning with just a moment's thought. But looking at a big picture, we could say from the pandemic to loneliness and isolation to division and divisiveness in our culture, we have seen sin at work all around us and in us, and this world needs the gospel. Santa Cruz needs the gospel It needs the message of Jesus, the Son of God, who on the cross takes the sins of the world. But that actually prompts the question that leads to our second point this morning. If the world needs this so badly, if we need this so badly, why on earth is Jesus trying to keep this a secret? You know, as weird and gross as putting your fingers in somebody's ears and then touching that guy's tongue is, the weirdest part of this passage is actually the secret. In a little bit, I'm going to give some thoughts on evangelism, so I think it's pretty pretty critical that we get what is and isn't going on here. You know, fundamentally, I think we should realize that Jesus is primarily concerned with misunderstanding. That is, Jesus knows that these people don't really get it. In fact, in Mark 8, 22 through 26, Jesus is going to heal a blind man, and oddly enough, it takes Jesus two attempts to do so. At first glance, this looks like Jesus took his hands off the guy too early and had to quickly reapply his hands in order to heal him completely. But most scholars believe that that passage in Mark chapter 8, what is really happening there is that Mark is recording an event that acts as a real-life parallel to Jesus' ministry. That in the first touch, when the man first encounters Jesus, when Jesus first touches him, he sees the truth, he sees reality, but he only sees so blurrily. He sees a distorted version. His eyes are open, but they're not fully functional. Much like the disciples see Jesus doing and saying and teaching, and they seem to only kind of get it. Jesus touches this man again, and then he sees clearly. And it's no coincidence that in the next text of Mark's Mark's gospel, after healing the blind man, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is recorded. Peter gets it. But a few verses later, Peter is told, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Because Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about his coming crucifixion. Peter got it, but only kind of. Peter saw, but only blurrily. He needed the second touch for clarity. Similarly here, we have, I think, a set of people who are high potentials for misunderstanding. They've seen Jesus do something, but they only see blurrily. They don't get it and they are in danger of sharing Jesus as a simple Jewish healer, not sharing his true identity. So I think it's helpful to contrast what's taking place here with the emissary I mentioned before from Mark chapter 5. You see, when we, when we contrast the two, what I think we'll see is that Misunderstanding is what Jesus is really concerned about. This isn't a text telling us not to evangelize. This is a text telling us to get it right. Take the man who had had the legion in him. That man, in Mark chapter 5, confessed with his own mouth, now albeit under control of demons, but he still confessed with his own mouth the true identity of Jesus, Mark 5, 7, and crying out in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Further, in that story, you have a man who spends time with Jesus, significant time. Consider this, verses 14 and 15 and 16. The herdsmen fled and told it in the cities and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man who had had a legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs." Okay, those three verses are a really quick paragraph that only take a couple of seconds to read, but consider for a moment how long those actual events would have needed to take place. The demons have to leave the man, and then I imagine Jesus pretty immediately clothes him and pretty quickly begins to minister to the man. But then the demons, they go from him into the pigs, and the pigs run down a hill and fall into a river and drown. All of this is witnessed by the herdsmen, and having witnessed that, they then flee into the city. How far away is the city? We're not told. I don't know. How long would it have taken to get there on foot? Not sure. Once in the city, they have to spread the news of what they saw, and so people gather to them. And once the news spreads and the crowd gathers, then they have to set back out for the countryside. How long would all of this have taken? Hours? Maybe a day? What if it was up to a week? That whole time, this man is with Jesus, sitting at his feet, learning from him, experiencing him. And he is doing so in such a way that when Jesus goes to leave, the man wants to get in the boat with him. Let's add another thing to the mix in terms of contrasting Mark 7 with Mark 5. There's no comment about the desire of the people in Mark 7 to follow Jesus, to go with him, to be his disciples. Oh, and one more thing. These men actually refuse to obey Jesus. Sure, they share what he did, but they do so against Jesus' own admonition. In fact, the text implies that not only do they not obey him once, that they recurringly and with increasing emphasis disobey him. Jesus charged them to tell no one, verse 36 says, and going on it says, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. In other words, they grew obstinate in their disobedience, rather than merely being overly enthusiastic and then calming down, once Jesus told them not to say anything. They share more fervently. By contrast, in Mark chapter 5, you have the man who had had legion want to follow Jesus, want to get in the boat with Jesus, but Jesus turns him down. He disappoints the man. And yet, that man still obeys Jesus. And he goes back to the Decapolis to share what God has done with him as Jesus instructed him to. He obeys and proclaims. So I point all of this out just to show us that there is substantial reason to believe that the purpose of the secret here is not because Jesus doesn't want people to share the gospel, but rather because they would not have understood the gospel. They would not have understood the nature and identity of Jesus. These guys don't get it, and so Jesus tries to quiet them down. And in fact, he does so in such language that it makes us think that if Jesus wasn't fulfilling Isaiah 35, in which he gives the deaf the ability to hear, he gives the mute the ability to speak, he probably would have made them mute, remove their ability to speak, just to stop them from sharing. I point all of this out in order to continue to beat the drum that we need to work hard to understand who Jesus is. We need to get Jesus right. And we need to do so not as mere doctrinal exercises, although having correct doctrine is important, but we need to get this right because the people of Santa Cruz need to hear the gospel and they need to meet the real and resurrected Lord Jesus, not some fabricated version of him that is more culturally acceptable, that is more friendly and warmer. They need to meet the real one. We, as a church, have, by the grace of God, experienced some growth over the past few months. And I speak for myself and for the other pastors and elders here when I say, I'm so glad that all of you are here, regardless of where you come from. But many of you who have come have come from other churches. And while we appreciate your presence here, we appreciate you coming and joining with us in our fellowship. I just want to note that we don't first and foremost want to see growth because people are leaving other churches to come here. We first and foremost want to see growth because the congregation of Santa Cruz Baptist Church is making disciples of Jesus out of previously non-Christian family, friends, and neighbors. In other words, we want to see growth in our church and in other gospel-believing churches because of evangelism we need to understand who Jesus is in order to evangelize correctly. You cannot share the gospel unless you have shared who Jesus is. And Mark has told us in every text we looked at in this series, but he tells us most clearly in the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Good news. So let's close with some thoughts on evangelism. And let me first start by explicitly saying, though it should go without saying, but, you know, let's be as clear and explicit as possible. We want you to share your faith with your friends, family, and neighbors who are non-Christians. And even though this text offers us misguided examples, we believe we are called to evangelize, that all Christians are called to evangelize. And we can actually note a few things in our text that are instructive for our evangelism. Now, there are three of them, and I think it's most helpful, or at least it is for me, to think of them in terms of hearing, listening, and proclaiming. So first, hearing. The path to discouragement in evangelism lies in thinking that evangelism is primarily about us. It isn't. Like the deaf man in our text, we need the miraculous work of God for effective evangelism. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Throughout the Gospels, we find references to those who have ears to hear. And we can understand this to mean that the Father, God, draws people to Jesus and gives them the ears to hear the message of the gospel. And without the ears to hear, evangelism is hopeless. That being said, we are still called to participate and share because we do not know who has been given the ears to hear. We do not know who the Father is drawing. And so we read in Romans 10, both of the simplicity of salvation and of the importance of us in the process. In Romans 10, starting in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple and as easy as that. For one with the heart believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. A few verses later we read, And how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Going down a little bit further, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are sent into the world as the someones of this text. Maybe just my imagination, but I feel you thinking again rather loudly something to the effect of, but I'm no preacher, Tyler. This text says, preach the good news. How are they to hear unless somebody preaches the good news? But consider, again, Mark one it It's been a long time since we were in this text, so let me read it again for us. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. It is the same word translated preach in Romans Ten that is translated talk freely about here in Mark one forty-five. So when I say we regular Christians are called to evangelize, that all of you are called to evangelize if you believe in this message, if you believe in the gospel, I am encouraging you to do simply this, to talk freely, freely about Jesus, to spread the news of what he has done for you. Second, think about listening. Biblically speaking, listening is nearly always connected with obeying. Who you listen to is who you obey. Thus, in Mark 4.41, the wind and the waves listen or obey Jesus. And in Ephesians 6.1, children are told to obey their parents, for this is right. And the literal translation would be to listen to your parents. Why is it important that we get that? Because we we need to listen to Jesus on multiple levels in order to evangelize well. Consider the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we are commanded to make disciples. So we need to listen to that command. Further, notice that listening to this command to make disciples requires us to listen on multiple levels because we need to, in order to make disciples, teach others to observe Jesus' teaching and commands. So we need to know Jesus' teaching and commands. We need to listen to the things that he has said, to the what the scriptures teach. And with a slight shift, we can see that when we do so, we need to understand we are not teaching people to live some sort of monkish monastic lifestyle. You know, John 15 tells us so clearly and so beautifully of the motivation for evangelism. He says, "...by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, if you keep my commandments." You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here we see several motivations that are to be lived out in obedience as we listen to Christ's commands. That the Father is glorified is one of our motivations. That we abide in the love of Christ is one of our motivations. And that our joy may be full and Christ's joy may be in us is a motivation. You see, this passage is the PR campaign of the Christian faith. Yes, the Christian faith calls us to die to ourselves. Yes, the Christian faith calls us to discipline ourselves. Yes, the Christian faith calls us to put others first. But to adhere to, to keep, to listen to such commands is not some sort of monkish self-denial, but is rather to enter into the love and joy, the peace of Christ. And evangelism is substantially easier if you understand that you're calling people to that. Third and finally, proclaiming. As we have already alluded to this, but this is not limited to public speech. Proclaiming is most frequent and most effective in relational discussions. Again, let us look to the man whom Jesus cast the legion of demons out of. Jesus told him in verse 20 to go and proclaim To his family and friends in his home, in the Decapolis, what God had done for him. Notice Jesus doesn't go tell him to stand on some street corner. He tells him to go home, to go to his friends. This is a relational conversation. And Jesus is simply telling him, when you interact with your friends, draw me into it. Tell them of what I have done for you. Similarly, in Acts 8... We are told that a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem sent and scattered the normal Christians throughout Judea and Samaria. It scattered all except the apostles. Continuing on, we're told that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So it was the ordinary Christians, not the apostles, that moved the gospel beyond Jerusalem. There's so much to say about evangelism, and we could be discussing it for a long time, and we will discuss some of it at the up-and-coming members meeting tonight in preparation for our Christmas tree event, but I think it's best to end by praying for Santa Cruz, to simply draw to a conclusion by asking God to soften the hearts of our community and to give them ears to hear. Ears to hear how Christians are thankful for the work of Christ on their behalf in their lives. Ears to hear how we have hope as we await the kingdom of Christ in a chaotic world. Ears to hear how the joy of the celebration of the birth of Christ renews our hope. Ears to hear the good news that God has provided more than a fresh start at the beginning of each new year, but has actually accomplished our salvation for us and that he wills and works in us for his good pleasure in our sanctification. And so to that end, let us pray that Santa Cruz have the ears to hear. Let us pray that Christ put our groaning to rest and grant us deeper understanding of who he is.